This is episode 141 of the Dear Discreet Guide podcast. This episode is titled, Fly Girl, a Female Pilot Exposé. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really delighted to welcome a fellow San Diegan to the show today. Robin R.D. Carden is with me, and I'll introduce her. Oh, we're going to be talking about her book today called Fly Girl. She's a native New Yorker educated in the New York City public school system. She attended New York University, where she earned a B.A. in journalism and sociology, magna cum laude, and was invited to join Phi Beta Kappa. After college, she went to law school at the American University Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. There she was a moot court champion and earned her J.D. and began a 10-year career as a commercial litigator. She became disillusioned with the law and sought out another career and started training to become a pilot in 1991. She has an FAA airline transport pilot certificate with three captain qualifications, type ratings, and is also a commercial instrument rated helicopter pilot and former airline captain. We're going to be talking about her book, Fly Girl, which she started a long time ago. She says it existed for 20 years as 83 pages printed in WordPerfect on blue note paper. And then eventually it entered the world on January 3rd, 2019. She has a second novel coming out, which is about the same protagonist, whose name is Trish Miles, and that will come out in September of 2020. She's lived in San Diego for the last 10 years, and she's an active volunteer in the animal rescue community and has three rescues of her own. So welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a really important program, and I'm honored to be a guest. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed Fly Girl. I kind of tore through it all practically all in one fell swoop and really enjoyed the story. And there's an interesting part in the book where Tris, Patricia, Tris talks about falling in love with flying and airlines and her goal to become a pilot. So what's your story? Uh, When I was a kid, uh, I would tell my mother, that I wanted to be an astronaut, just like Trish Miles in the book, uh, because as you know, Fly Girl is based substantially on my own experience. Just like Trish Miles, my mother said, oh, girls don't do that. And they didn't. Uh, This was in the 60s, and there were no female astronauts in the 60s. So uh, as much as, as it's hard to imagine today saying that to a child, it was entirely correct back then. Uh, every weekend, my grandparents used to take us to John F. Kennedy International Airport, uh, where you could just walk in and run around and look at the airplanes. And I was just always fascinated by it so from a very young age. Mm-hmm. So a very similar story, actually, to Tris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'm going to be doing a series of podcasts about people who choose a second career. And this Uh episode will be a great introduction to that whole notion. So tell us what happened 10 years into your career as an attorney, and then you decided to go in a completely different direction. Many attorneys, and I have talked to thousands of them over the years, uh, are not satisfied with the legal profession. It isn't what you think it's going to be when you go to law school. Mm. Uh, So many of us go with the idea that we're going to get special training that we can use to help people. Uh, At the end of the day, the people who we help are the law firm partners and we help them make money uh, off of our time. So I was disillusioned with that. The other thing I did not like that I was a litigator, which means I was essentially arguing for a living. And and that tends to get old uh, after a relatively short time. I had just started a new job uh, and I was talking with one of my new clients about what we did in our spare time. And he mentioned that he was a private pilot and that his son was a flight instructor. And I said, wow, I've always wanted to do that. And he said, well, why don't you call my son and take a lesson? All right. You know, can't hurt. Uh, and after that first lesson, I started investigating ways to become a professional pilot, mm. uh, which I, which I did. Uh, I had to work just like my character, Chris Miles. I had to work full time, uh, in order to pay for flight training. And every night I studied and every weekend rain or shine, because of course this was in Chicago. So there was a lot of bad weather. Uh, but every weekend rain or shine, I was at the airport. And tell us more about your flying career, who you worked for and how long you flew. I flew professionally for 12 years. I've always been one of those people, as you can see from my uh, professional background, who is attracted to to trying things. So I started because I I came late to flying because it was a second career and I was a civilian. I had to start building my flight time and experience. And the way civilians do that typically is by flight instructing. So I became a flight instructor, which I loved. I loved teaching people how to fly. And as you gain more experience, you become attractive to smaller airlines called regional airlines. Mm -hmm. And I got my first regional airline job in 1994 with an airline that is no longer a business. They were called Lone Star. Mm -hmm. I flew for them. Uh, I was commuting my my base. I lived in Chicago. My base was in uh, Mountain Home, Arkansas. So there I was, commuting to central Arkansas. And as many airline pilots will tell you, commuting is not the most pleasant life. Uh, After a relatively short time, I had an opportunity with the company uh, that became the basis for Tetrix um, in the book Fly Girl. And I was hired as the company's first female pilot. And I ended up flying as a corporate pilot for two and a half years there. And then another year and a half uh, after that, and that means I flew luxury private jets all over the world, got to see places that I never thought I would ever see. Mm. I um, eventually left the corporate flying to go back to the airlines and flew for a series of airlines until 9-11, which really decimated my flying career and a lot of other people's flying careers, along with many, many other tragic consequences. I think I can honestly say that 9-11-2001 was the worst day of my life. It destroyed um, an icon- two iconic buildings in my hometown that I remember being built when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, they caused thousands of deaths. That day caused thousands of deaths of innocent people. 
and it destroyed uh, the aviation industry along with many, many other industries um, and threw us in to, you know, an economic downturn um, that it took a very long time for us to recover from. So, uh, you know, after that, I got a series of flying jobs, but either I was about to, I, I got laid off from my flying job right after 9-11. Uh, because the airline I was flying for encountered financial difficulties. And it seemed like every job I took, I was either getting laid off or the company was struggling. And finally, uh, in 2004, um, you know, I just, I, I was just so down and so defeated that I thought, you know, I have a graduate degree. I could be doing something else. Uh, so I decided to, to voluntarily leave aviation um, and pursue a career as a consultant, uh, using my law degree to help other attorneys uh, find new careers. And that's what I, I did for 15 years. Yeah, I'm sorry, Robin, that that yeah. happened to you on 9-11. That, that's really terrible. I didn't realize that 9-11 caused so much disturbance in the aviation industry. Was that just because uh, travel became unpopular? I think travel, I think people were afraid to travel immediately after 9-11, but no, it was the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had a, we had a terrorist attack, uh, astronomically catastrophic terrorist attack. We had a catastrophic terrorist attack on our soil. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and a big one. I mean, I, I always, people always say, you know, do you think it'll ever happen again? And my answer is, why would you improve on perfection? I mean, I don't think that terrorists could do a better job of disturbing um, our country than they did on September 11th, 2001. Uh, but it was the whole economy. It was the airline industry took a huge hit. Uh, the travel industry, the hospitality industry, other types of transportation, cab drivers, everyone got hit as a result of that. Yeah, that's uh, very sobering. And like I said, I'm sorry that that put such a sword into your career just overnight, practically have such a tremendous effect on your career. There was just an article that I was reading about the stress of the lifestyle for flight attendants. And in particular, they talked about the dangers of alcohol for flight attendants and that, it, you know, it's just you're away from home a lot. The dealing with the public, of course, is difficult. And then it's kind of a party scene. Did you feel as though that was true also for the pilots? Oh, yeah. We were exposed as pilots to a very similar environment. Uh, the key here, however, is with regard to alcoholism, and I have known pilots who are alcoholics. Uh, I profiled one uh, in Fly Girl, who's that character, the Larry Ross character, is based on an actual person. I see. Who is thankfully still alive. <laughs> oh, I see. But, yeah, um, but alcoholism was rampant in aviation. But remember, federal law limits pilots in terms of how close to flying they can have a drink. That is called the bottle to throttle rule. So uh, federal law says that you have an eight hour bottle to throttle rule. In other words, you cannot drink within eight hours of operating an aircraft. Most airlines extend that to 12 hours in their operation specifications. <laughs> and even though it may have been 13 hours since you took a drink, 
you cannot operate an aircraft if your blood alcohol level is 0.04 or above. So there, and, and I believe that flight attendants are subject to similar strictures, although I can't uh, state uh, that I'm an expert. So if there was any partying, it usually would be on a very long overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, or when we knew, you know, we weren't going to operate uh, for at least 12 hours. Uh, and even then, uh, most of us were far more circumspect about our drinking and flying. This is your career. You're subject as a, a, a you know, as, as a pilot, you're subject, a federally regulated pilot, you are subject to random drug testing. So uh, you can be pulled out of the cockpit at the end of any flight and given a urine test. And if you fail that test, your career is over. Mm-hmm. So we didn't mess around with the bottle to throttle rules. The stress of it, the being away from home, the long days, the early get-ups followed by short overnights where sometimes you would, you would have the choice. You could either get a meal or get some sleep, but you didn't have time to do both. And the meal you could get would not necessarily be a healthy meal. Sometimes you've had a chance to work out. Sometimes you didn't. So it's a tough, tough lifestyle. Tough lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed all the specifics in the book. You know, the kind of behind the scenes glimpses that we get of of, uh, really a very different kind of life. Were there any messages about work that you wanted to convey in the book? Oh, there were many. I think that I have always been a woman at work. My entire professional career, I have been a woman at work. I have worked in male-dominated fields. Uh, I have worked in fields that have not been male-dominated, where even though they have not been male-dominated, you know, women are looked at differently. Mm-hmm. And they're treated differently. Sometimes it's not being a woman that causes you to be treated differently. It's being a certain type of woman. Um, how many women uh, have highlighted you know, being assertive in the workplace, you know, being labeled with, you know, a, a, an epithet that rhymes with itch. Mm-hmm. Whereas a man with the same behavior is considered a go-getter. I've been an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in situations where I've had to speak up and had to be aggressive about speaking up. And situations where I felt I needed to speak up and be aggressive about speaking up where it wasn't valued. That was the message. The message in Fly Girl is what it is like to be in a situation where for some reason, some ridiculous reason, a reason of how you look or where you're from or who you are, you are not valued. You are marginalized. Uh, Your opinion is dismissed you know, you are considered to not have value. And I would defy anyone who listens to this podcast or to whom I speak when I talk about my book to say that there hasn't been a time in their life uh, where that that hasn't been true. I wondered why you decided to write your story. I didn't realize how similar it was to to your own life and career. I wondered why you decided to write it as a, as a novel instead of as a memoir. I get asked that question all the time. Oh, God. Uh, and, uh, and I've talked about it quite a bit. Uh, at first, when it was going on, I started taking the notes, the infamous 83 pages in WordPerfect, um, which 
many of your listeners probably have never even heard of before. <laughs> you know, the, the, the dinosaur of word processing programs. Um, I started writing a description because it, I, we used to have a saying when I was growing up in my family. Um, truth is stranger than fiction, and this is stranger than truth. And the things I was seeing, the things I was hearing, the things I was subject to were stranger than truth. Uh, they were just so bizarre. They, they couldn't have been predicted. I would tell my friends, oh, this happened at work today, or so-and-so said this, and be like, are you kidding? No. <laughs> um, I mean, these people, just the, the, the combination of characters, the characters in Fly Girl, I think, particularly uh, the male characters, are very distinctive. Yes. They are based on real people. I see. I thought, you know, uh, let me, this is a great yarn. Let me tell the story. Let me also, and this is critically important, Jennifer, I wanted to draw not only on my own experience, but the experiences of other women I knew that were coming up at the same time. And I wanted to make sure that I could give my readers an authentic peek at what it was like to be a woman in the cockpit at that time without it taking four or 500 pages, uh-huh, right. you know, and without, and without narrating, well, you know, I got up this morning and had eggs for breakfast. I, I wanted to make it, you said that you were able to read the book in a relatively short time. That's what I wanted. I wanted to write a page turner that was based in truth and that would tell a real relatable story. And I, I hope I accomplished that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, now I'm having more questions since I know that there is a lot of uh, autobiographical nature to it. So Tris is very ambitious. She uh, is making career decisions uh, fast because she wants to become a captain and she also wants to be uh, in command. And was that true for you also? Did you have that kind of drive? Yes. Uh, and, and also I added, and I hinted this with Tris, but I think it was much more prevalent with me. I felt behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really felt behind uh, that I was running out of time, um, that everybody was 10 years ahead of me. And I, and I guess they were. And, and it weighed on me. Um, well, the, and the one thing I did not have that Tris does have is, of course, she's motivated. She's, she suffered a tragic loss. And she feels like she needs to advance in her career to atone for the mistakes that she made. That that was not part of, of my career. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the things I really like about Tris is that she's not one of those protagonists who can do no wrong. You know, she <laughs> she, she she has she makes mistakes. She gets flustered. Uh, she didn't do particularly well in a certain part of her training. At one point, she miscalculates the amount of fuel that's needed by an order of magnitude just because she's under pressure in that particular moment. So I really enjoyed uh, those those uh, parts of her to make her more real. And there's a place in the book where she's being interviewed and she gets asked about training and she decides not to talk about the problems that she had getting through training and that she at one point almost failed. And she says... Uh, she's describing this uh, scene later to a friend, and she said, I decided not to talk about it and just say, well, I passed. She said, quote, it's behind me, and that's where I should leave it. But the person she's talking to thinks to himself, hmm, tough call. Did you feel as though that was not the right thing for her to do, that she should have brought up her difficulty in training in that interview? Yeah, I do. Uh, I've counseled thousands of people uh, and, and prepared them for job interviews uh, in a variety of fields. And 
I always counsel them to, to bring up any negatives in their background, even if they would not naturally come up in the interview, bring them up. Uh, because the last thing you want is for someone to find out and then confront you about why you didn't bring it up. You may recall also in the scene during the interview, the person who is interviewing her uh, knows that she's holding something back, but he doesn't care. Right. Yes, I remember that. So, you know, in, in a situation like that, you know, two people make a split second judgment and no, I, I don't agree with what Trish did. I would have done something differently and I would counsel any applicant to do it differently. Hmm, interesting. Well, it clearly bothered her and it bothered the person she was talking to that she didn't bring it up. Yeah, uh, it did. And it should. One of the things about creating fictional characters is to make them flawed because we are all flawed. The, the key to me and, and to any writer, I think, and, and you know this yourself, Jennifer, um, if you're going to write fiction is to make your characters relatable. There will be people who read the book, who get to that point and have a variety of reactions. One is, wow, she lied. The other is, yeah, I might've done that. The third is, wow, I understand where she's coming from and, and, and a whole host thousands of, of other different reactions, but they will have a reaction to it. They will see themselves or they will see someone they know. Yeah. I think what caught my eye was that I didn't have that same reaction. I, I guess I wouldn't have expected her to kind of spill her guts about the problems that she'd had in training, but you know, obviously that's what's interesting <laughs> about reading, right? Is that you get a sense of other people's view of the world, which is, educational and interesting. Well, it also creates robust discussions like the one we're having right now. Right. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things that's that's interesting is that it's very obvious to Tris and to the reader and the, her hiring managers that she gets the job because she is a woman. Do you feel as though that ever happened to you? I do. And, and the job that this was, uh, this book was based on was the one I am fairly sure because they hired me when I had way less experience than anybody else in the group. And that group of guys, and, and when I say guys, I do mean men uh, that I worked with had been together a long time. They were all way more experienced than I was. Yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting situation. She begins to suffer from uh, at first, I would say that the sexism that she faces is more nuanced, particularly from her training manager who was himself passed over uh, because of a woman. So he harbors resentment for that. Uh -huh. And at that point in the book before, you know, I'd read the rest of it, I kind of felt like, you know, I sort of see his point. Wh what did you think about that? Dieter is not an unsympathetic character. His opinion about women in the cockpit is reprehensible and indefensible, but he himself is not. He is not reprehensible or indefensible. You know, he represents the hundreds of people I sat next to in airline and corporate cockpits who served their country. He carried a chip on his shoulder. Uh, and she was, Tris was the representation of everything he thought had been wrong 
mm-hmm. in his military career. But after his initial reaction to her, he realizes that that, that chip exists, that feeling of inferiority exists in his own head. And it's based on at, at his own actions that he himself take, ultimately takes responsibility for. Uh, and that's how he transforms. And that's what fiction, the characters in fiction, uh, is, you know, writing fiction uh, is about is the transformation of a character. Yeah, he's a very interesting character. But but several of those, well, almost all of those male characters are very complex and interesting people. I felt as though uh, for both the two main male characters that I would recognize them if I met them in the street was just always a good sign for uh, how well they were portrayed in words. And so Dieter is very interesting, and he pulls a lot of the shenanigans that I saw when I was working in the corporate world, too. For example, he complains to one of his fellow co-workers that he'd had to train Tris, and he's like, oh, it was just terrible. You know, it was the longest hour of my life, he says. And the reality is that she was very invested in training. And so maybe she's a little bit over-enthusiastic, but he really is just resentful of her, right? It wasn't the training so much that he objected to. It's that that he had to train her. It, it's a very subtle resentment of something that's just part of your job. Exactly. And that was what I meant to portray. So I believe me, it, it, it warms my heart to hear uh, that that point got through. Uh, and I'm sure that some of the readers, and by the way, uh, at least based on the online reviews that I've seen of the book, uh, most my readers are not just women. It's at least 40 to 50% male. And they all say that, you know, I, I accurately depicted uh, the working world and particularly the aviation world at the time. Uh, and in his case, if it had been uh, another male pilot, he'd have probably just, because he has a big personality and he, whatever it is he thinks, <laughs> he approaches those thoughts and those opinions with gusto. You know, he would have applied that gusto to the training of the male co-pilot. Uh, but with Tris, all he can see are his own failures. Uh, and she represents them. He doesn't know her. He knows nothing about her. Mm-hmm. He just decided, what, what's the line that Larry Ross uses? Uh, memory is a funny thing. When you decide in advance, you're not going to like someone. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's one place, and I, I don't want to ruin the book for people who haven't read it, and I do encourage the, the listeners to read it. I think you'll enjoy it. But there is a place where he really snaps, and his uh-huh. distaste for her really comes out in a very ugly way. And so uh-huh. I hate to ask this, but did that, anything like that ever happen to you? Yes. Uh, I, I, yes, but not in the same environment. Uh, I had a captain that I was flying with react in a very ugly way using some very ugly language uh, when he made a bad landing in uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> of all places. <laughs> of all places. Uh, I have never had the kind of experience that Tris, Dieter, and Ross had uh, over the skies of Luxembourg, uh, thankfully. But I thought that was a great way to combine experiences to depict 
how these prejudices show themselves in stressful situations. Mm. You can cover it. People who are bigoted learn over time how to cover their bigotry, right? But when you're under severe stress, your filters drop. And that was the point I was trying to make. I put Dieter and Ross under severe stress and their filters dropped. Yeah, so Tris then has to make a big decision about whether or not she's going to tell anybody what happened. There are actually a bunch of things that happened in that particular event on that particular trip that were reportable and definitely distracting and hard things to think about. And one of the things that she thinks when she's deciding whether or not to report, she says the the story quote it would never be told the way it really happened and i thought that was such a smart line and so true and it's why so many of these me too stories are really complicated and we lose those nuances when the stories get told and retold and told in sound bites and put on twitter and all that do you have any observations about what's happening today I believe that Me Too is and what was and is a very important movement. Uh, it is critical uh, that women be permitted to use their voice in a way that does not come back and harm them. One of the things I find interesting about Me Too is that it was prevalent mostly and had the best results for women mostly in the entertainment industry, where female powerhouses like Oprah Winfrey, are the spokespeople for the movement. Now, let's be real. No one's going to tell Oprah Winfrey what to do. And if they did, who cares? Yeah, right. She is hands down one of the, if not the most powerful person in entertainment. So having her as a spokesperson for me too, you know, it really moved um, the needle for women. In aviation, we don't have that kind of spokesperson. Mm. I belong to a number of different groups of female aviators where we discuss the type of issues that Tris faced every day, every day, 20 years later. I see. You know, has it changed? Has the environment gotten better for women? There are more women in it, but has it gotten better Uh, in aviation? I would tend to say same. I was reading this morning uh, about a female pilot who was in training at an airline who had her simulator instructor, a male, screaming at her uh, during training, during simulator training, when she's theoretically trying to fly the airplane. Mm-hmm. And my response was, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every instructor who'd screamed at me, uh, I would own the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one thing I really appreciated about the book was the the subtlety and the complexity of the situations that you set up and why and you really show why discrimination is hard to deal with and hard to prove yeah and there's a again I don't want to give too much away but there's a place in the book where unbeknownst to Tris there are forces at work behind what she can see and observe that are setting her up for failure. Yep. And it's it's really, you know, it's so interesting to see how there's no way that she would know that that was all happening behind the scenes. But it also shows how 
easy it is to make things hard for women and how sometimes you just have a suspicion that maybe things, the cards are a little bit stacked against you, but you're not sure why. And I wanted to tell a story here. I was really shocked. It's probably been a year or so. A story came out uh, in the public that had to do with admission to medical school in Japan. And it had been the practice of the medical schools to downgrade the women's test scores routinely across the board. If you were a woman, you got fewer, you got points taken off fewer women because they wanted to maintain a certain ratio, male to female ratio of admission into medical school. This was openly acknowledged. The Japanese officials came out and apologized. And I was so floored by thinking of the number of people who must have been in on that, right? All the programmers, all the reviewers, I mean, the, the committees that they must have had set up to determine just how much they would reduce the scores of the women to get this ratio. You know, that this has all been going on behind the scenes. And it, it's just shocking to me to see that something like that in this day and age, right, is, is still going on. Oh, sure. And you have to have buy-in in order to make that work. What is interesting about Fly Girl is that uh, I wrote it from the perspective of five different characters. Yes. Which for a debut novel is very rare uh, to write. Usually debut novels are from one perspective, either first person I or third person she or he. Uh, I wrote it from five because I wanted to make the point to the reader exactly that you may the, the person who's being affected by these decisions may not know what's happening and even to the end of the book something happens to Trip uh, and she doesn't know exactly how it happened she has her suspicions she's mm -hmm. never able to confirm them so the reader walks away from the book with more information than the main character absolutely i thought it was very effective i was surprised the first time the perspective switched because I think the first time we go straight to Danny, who's a friend of hers, mm -hmm. and we're right. inside his head. And I was like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, because you, you don't necessarily expect that from this type of book. But but by the time I got to the big denouement, I could see why you did it. And I thought it was extremely effective uh, because of that, because we know what's happening behind the scenes and she doesn't. Well, thank you. Uh, my second book, Angel Flight, which is coming out in September, uh, which is a continuation of Tris Miles' story. Uh, it's, it's a standalone book, but it continues her story. I, I hesitate to call it a, a sequel or a series uh, because you don't really need to read one to read, you know, to read the other. Okay. But in Angel Flight, it's also told from multiple perspectives. The reader will have a critical piece of information right away that none of the other characters have till two thirds of the book is over. Mm. And it, it colors every single thing that happens in the book. I hope, hope people enjoy it. I enjoyed writing it, but I like the idea of people living their lives and not really knowing what comes next. Yeah. And I think that's especially true for these topics about bias and discrimination. There's a really interesting American Life episode in which they uh, had young black people go and attempt to rent apartments. 
And then they would follow up later with white people for the, um, this was actually New York City, your hometown. Go figure. Yeah. (laughs) They would follow up. White people would then follow up at the same apartments and the white people would, you know, the story, the white people would get the apartments and the black people were told that it wasn't available or something else. And they then, the hosts of the show then circled back to the young black people and, and exposed this information to them. And you can just hear in their voices, their disbelief that, you know, in this day and age, so to speak, that this is still happening. And they're so embarrassed and hurt, you know, that, that this discrimination is so blatantly going on that they didn't know about and that they thought didn't exist it anymore. It, it is prevalent. It, it hasn't gone away because parents are still teaching their children to hate. <laughs> and this is clearly disturbing my cat, James Bond. <laughs> exactly. So, your cat's so, chiming in. <laughs> James, James I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, James. So let me repeat that again. The, the culture of discrimination is passed on from parent to child. And that is the reason it still exists. So there's a critical moment in the book where Tris gets uh, help from an unanticipated place. And I wanted to ask if anything like that had ever happened to you, or is that just wishful thinking? Wishful thinking. One of the reasons that I had not mentioned before that I decided to write a novel is I could change history. I could rewrite history. In fact, in real life, the nefarious plan worked. They executed the nefarious plan, and I ended up getting fired from my job. Wow. And in Fly Girl, I felt the responsibility to the reader to show them that the main character could win, or at least could, could walk away with dignity intact, because I believe that it is possible to do that. Not always. Mm-hmm. Not in every situation. And it wasn't for me in that particular situation that I fictionalized, but it was for me in a lot of other situations. Uh-huh. So, you know, I thought it would be just unrealistic um, to keep hammering <laughs> the poor character. Right. Yeah, right. I think there's a lot of mm, things that happen between a writer and a reader, right? That the that the writer does need to take care of the reader in some situations. Uh, we always talk about good writers being really so mean to their characters, um, but I don't think a reader will put up with that forever. I think too, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was finishing up Angel Flight, my second book, uh, I actually put it to my readers that I wanted to write one of two endings. One that would give Tris a big win and, you know, big celebration. And another that was more tempered, win some, lose some, uh, and something to think about moving forward. But what? But when I originally wrote the book, uh, the ending was a big loss for her. And I thought, nah, you know, I can't really do this and I don't want to do it to her. I, I, I want, it, it's just to me to keep getting hammered again and again. It's just not realistic. Uh, and believe it or not, the uh, ending that that one and the one that I wrote was a series of wins, a couple of losses, but something to think about moving forward. Because 
Jennifer, that's most people's lives. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, most of us are not lottery winners. You know, most of us get to celebrate uh, some of the wins and then, you know, just as, just as, you know, we're eating that last piece of cake or drinking that last sip of champagne, um, something bad happens that we have to deal with or that we have to manage. That's life. That's life. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, and I wanted to write about real life for real people. Robin, I wondered if you wanted to share anything with the listeners about where they can find your book or follow your work or anything else you'd like for them to know. I would love for anyone listening to this podcast to give Fly Girl a read. Uh, It is Fly Girl, one word, S-L-Y-G-I-R-L by R.D. Carden, K-A-R-D-O-N. You can find it wherever books are sold. You can go to your local indie bookstore and have them order it for you. Uh, You can buy it online. Uh, and if you want to learn more about me, uh, and my second book, Angel Flight, which is coming out in September, you can go to my website, rdcardenauthor, all one word, dot com. That's great. Well, thank you for writing the book. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for coming on the show. It was an honor, Jennifer. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.